You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. It's 4pm and time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, why Australia needs to stand up and oppose Israeli annexation of Palestinian land. I'll be speaking with the Principal Lawyer and Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. Speakers at a recent online discussion on why they should not be a nuclear waste dump at Kimber in South Australia. The second part of another online discussion, this time on annexation with three Palestinian activists in three countries. The new terror laws in the Philippines and the Australian connection. Tragedy in Beirut impacting on all peoples, but particularly Palestinian refugees. And of course, Mr Kevin Healy, and this is his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when as we enter lockdown, to consolidate lockdown, daily contagion remaining high, who else to emerge as the great saviour providing us with the wise leadership we need but our old mate, the Tubluwazi Industry Profits Group's Innes Wilcox, the workers, who criticised the lockdown to, consol- to consolidate lockdown as too restrictive. Uh, too restrictive on people's movements in us. Too restrictive on the caring business class. So what should we do as the pandemic rages? We must get the balance right. As caring employers, we understand fully the need to take reasonable precautions. The government lockdown, the consolidate lockdown, will cost jobs, and jobs are our raison d'etre, why we exist, for the workers whom we so care about. Uh, Yes, we've noticed that. So so what would be the perfect balance? A balance between the health of the economy and the health of our profits. The Business Profits Council is distraught that the pejorative Dan State Government has done all this without consultation, creating, quote, a complete mess for the business class without letting the business class advise it on how not to make a complete mess for the caring business class. And retailer, the ever-happy Solly on the loo, was rendered very unhappy that the government was forcing him to close his stores, for which, remember, he has decided unilaterally not to pay rent to the greedy landlords. And this just a week after Solly was so ever-happy again that Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, and the team had extended JobKeeper to keep paying his workers. What a heartless, heartless pejorative Dan government. We've mentioned how we all admire the role those mantras of neoliberal economics contracting out low-paid casual work, inadequate incomes and the privatisation services that turn over a neat little profit have worked a treat in containing COVID-19, other than being largely responsible for it spreading like, well, like the plague, and last week expressed our best wishes to the good shareholders of Estia, whose shares went up just a day after the government took over two of its aged care centres for no stronger reason than it was stuffing up big time. Well, the founder of Estia, a bloke called Peter Armanitis, real name, who now runs Heritage Care with homes in Melbourne and Sydney, turned up in Vogue True Blue Aussie magazine with a delightful, moving little story of how Pete and wife Aretti are suffering during the lockdown, along with patients across the privatised aged care sector. The article describes their little Turak pad they're forced to suffer in as mansion made for modern-day Greek gods, 
a field-sized living room, a bathroom filled with the goddess-worthy relic of a bath hewn from single-slab black stone. The building, a mere 2,000 square metres, minor Mount Olympus, where Aphrodite, who announces herself as Areti, alights from her first-floor stratosphere to welcome all to her minor Mount Olympus which we hope she's not doing because that's uh, banned under the lockdown, which we presume applies to the Greek deity. Poor Aretti and Pete stuck in their mansion with nothing to do but think about the terrible conditions being exposed in the aged care industry, well, well the super-efficient private sector side of the industry. And full marks to Vogue for the controlled objectivity of its writing because they were direct quotes. But unfairly, one financial journal commenting on the article said, this is temple built with the life savings of two blue Aussies elderly. Bit unfair. Still, it shows there's a quid or several billion to be made in aged care, which is probably why the industry is calling for government support to allow them to continue providing the care they so boast about in their glossy brochures and advertisements. Top marks to one of them, Mequacare, again real name, which like all caring employers, really so cares for its workers, it emailed staff last week informing them they could not catch COVID-19 at work if they wore protective equipment correctly, but could and immunity if they did not comply with regulations and told them they could only self-isolate if they produced a medical certificate. Typical of evil union non-cooperation, the bloody nursing and midwifery lot dismissed the email as, listen to this, insulting to the more than 1,000 healthcare workers in Victoria who have contracted coronavirus. But Mequacare then said its email was a mistake. We corrected it as soon as we realised our mistake, it's said. And when did you realise? Well, roughly, give or take, uh, when the proverbial hit the fan. We mentioned last week how U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, just couldn't understand how his popularity was declining, or more correctly, his unpopularity was soaring, while the chief medical officer's popularity was increasing, showing how Donald is anchored to reality. So this week, as his popularity continued to, well, his unpopularity continued to, he found the perfect solution to all that. What do you do when it looks like you lose an election? Simple. Call off the election. But in fairness, not because he could lose, but because, well, tell us, Donald. Because if I lose, it'll be rigged. Fake election. Fake election. Biggest fake election ever. Ever. See, told you he was rooted in reality, but last, uh, but last time Hillary got more votes than you, lots more votes than you, yet you won. So, so that was rigged, presumably? Greatest one ever, ever. Wicked Hillary's rigged it, but greatest ever, ever won. In the What a Surprise Department, we have unearthed one example. This is true of Donald telling the truth. No, it's true. Now, we know Donald has given good U.S. of tech companies like Macro Profits Not Soft until September to buy out the U.S. of arm of TikTok or he'll pack TikTok back to evil China where it belongs. The clock is TikToking because apparently TikTok's role with young people dancing and carrying on is subversive. Well, we'd expect nothing less from evil China, would we? And Donald has demanded that a substantial portion of the predicted 70 billion sale price should go to him. 
well, to the government, which he sees as the same thing, and asked to defend why the government should get anything, Donald said, with his famous modesty, nobody else would be thinking about it but me, but that's the way I think. Exactly. Nobody else would be thinking about it. The truth make a killing. Death this week of Ireland's John, whose opposition to violence from both his own Catholic side and the Protestant side played a key role in bringing the parties together, for which he shared the 98 Nobel Peace Prize. And among the tributes, his contribution to peace in Northern Ireland was extraordinary from former Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, Tiny Blyer. And your contribution to non-peace in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Palestine, well, the Middle East generally? We acted on reliable intelligence from no less intelligent and reliable, reliable intelligence than our very, very, very good friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, uh, which was 100% unreliable from no less unintelligent and unreliable, unreliable, unintelligence than your very, very good friend, the US of. Let me assure you that George W. Bash, the workers, and the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo in those dark ages in your country, and I, had no idea, no idea the totally reliable intelligence and irrefutable proof was all lies. No idea. Yes, no idea seems to sum you all up, but why use the word lies? Uh, uh, I meant mistaken. Mistaken as just a money-grabbing resource behemoth, poor Rio Tinto the planet, forced to face a Senate inquiry into the little matter of blowing up 46,000 years of indigenous history, provided the perfect explanation. We originally considered mining options that would have preserved the area, Supremo John Sebastian jokes on you submitted, but chose instead to target high-grade iron ore. There. What other explanation do we need? High-grade iron ore. What choice did they have? And John Sebastian stressed the company had unreservedly apologised. Genuine tears, it seems. Although we assume there are crocodiles in that area. But the main thrust of Rio Tato, the planet's mission, was that there not be a knee-jerk reaction to the Dukan Cave's destruction, like laws preventing them doing it again. Knee-jerk changes to the law could deter investment, John Sebastian pointed out. See, genuine remorse, unreserved apology. Finally, two of our group of eight sandstone fine institutions, the unis of Melbourne and NSW, have been repaying millions in yet more examples of caring employers inadvertently underpaying workers. But I thought the New South Wales case might have been deliberate part of the curriculum because it seems the underpaid workers were in the business school. What better way to teach students how to run a business? Inspired pedagogy. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy. I put you in a mirror. I put in front of me. Hi, I'm Elise Platt and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your radio dial. The massive explosion in the port of Beirut, apparently set off by a fire, has destroyed not only buildings, infrastructure, and more importantly, people's lives and long-term health, but the fragile peace, which prior to the blast was set to boil over. And boil over it has. Surviving citizens, 
after the initial shock and horror of what occurred, are angry and protesting in the streets, demanding the political class take responsibility. Resignation or hang, read one banner. It is reported that international aid has arrived, setting up field hospitals to treat the wounded, who are many. Lebanon, as we know, is a small country bounded by Syria to the north and the east and Israel to the south, with a population of less than 7 million, and 1.5 million of those are refugees from Palestine, Syria and Iraq, the majority Palestinians. Approximately one-third are Palestinian refugees and their descendants who were forced out of their homes by the Jewish terrorists in 1948 and many live in 12 refugee camps set up by the UN in Lebanon. Australian human rights campaigner Dr Helen McHugh knows Beirut well and is in daily contact with Dr Olfat Mahmoud, the General Director of the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation, an organisation that works alongside Palestinian refugees in those camps in Lebanon. Helen, you know Beirut well, what was your first reaction to the news of the disaster? You know, my immediate concern was for Olfat, but how I heard about it was four o'clock in the morning because I, I just woke up, saw Olfat had sent me a short clip of the explosion, and, you know, she said she was okay, and I rang her immediately then at four, which was about two hours after the explosion. She had left her house because she was terrified and had gone and was with some very nearby neighbours you know, she said she was still very shaken. And even yesterday when I spoke to her, I could tell she was uh, really very down, you know, deeply saddened and depressed about the situation, about the loss of life, you know, the devastation. Um, I think it's really hard for us to get a good grasp of the level of devastation because it's just so extensive. And none of the pictures actually show. You can't see it just in the pictures. I think you have to know that area to be able to grasp just, you know, how extensive the devastation is. I was just really, really very, very sad and shocked. Yeah, I was feeling very depressed and, like everybody else, followed quickly by anger. But the pictures show a level of devastation, of of flattening of a whole area. There were things that are not sort of mentioned. There are... A lot more people, they believe, who have lost their lives because, for instance, the main highway between Beirut and Tripoli, people were on that highway. Tragically, when they saw the fire burning, they slowed down. As a consequence, there were a lot of cars that were caught on that highway and and the the bridge collapsed, completely collapsed. So there are people missing that, you know, maybe they'll never be able to recover the bodies. And also the bus stop, the main bus stop, was also nearby. And, you know, there would have been people getting ready for the bus as well. And the area, it was, a, it, was a, it was sort of like a nightclub area, which was also very close to that area. So that's the immediate devastation. You know, it goes for, I'm trying to think of a size that would be, so if you think of Sydney and you go from the Opera House all the way around to Darling Point. I mean, that whole area would be, you know, like completely flattened. It was a huge area. And, and of course, I immediately was concerned for Olfat and her family and for all of the people in the camp. She was fortunate in that she actually had her window, uh, which was opened, so the 
blast went through part of her house and disrupted it, but it also blew a door off a tinge. And she's seven kilometres away, so that's a huge blast. Now, she has sent you a couple of emails since. Can you talk a little bit more about how she was feeling and, and what she was seeing in those dreadful hours after? First of all, she's absolutely terrified because she felt like it was an earthquake. It, you know, the apparently the size of 3.5 on the Richter scale is what they measured the blast. Right underneath it is to certainly feel an earthquake as well. But then she actually felt as if the building was about to fall down. And so she said she'd, she'd been through wars and she'd experienced all sorts of things, but she'd never in her life experienced such a great terrifying feeling that she had immediately um, afterwards. She'd been in touch with the people in the camp and they also you know, felt the great fear that she had. And also they were doubly fearful because the buildings in the camp are very flimsy. And over the years, you know, they were never meant to be permanent structures. And so, you know, they started off being tin shacks and then they became, you know, they were allowed to build cement. But, you know, nobody's the foundation. You know, it's, it's a shanty town. That's what it is. As the population has grown, it's now 40,000. And when I was there years ago, it was 20,000. And so I can't imagine how crowded it is, but the buildings have gone up and up. And as a consequence, you know, it's a bit of a miracle that none of the buildings came down, but they would have been greatly weakened. And in the past, certainly people have been killed because buildings have just collapsed. So, I mean, that was a great concern of hers, that, you know, that the buildings in the camp would collapse. Many people are being told to leave their homes. But if you're a refugee in a refugee camp, you don't leave your home. You've got nowhere else to go. And you're not allowed to go anywhere else anyway. Well, they certainly got nowhere else to go. They were told to leave their homes because of the risk from the fumes from the blast. And what OFAC did immediately was to try and get as much fresh milk to people in the camp. But, you know, it's very expensive. It's very expensive to buy milk these days. You know, that was apparently if you drink milk, it, it minimises the effect of the ammonia nitrate that was, you know, the cause of the blast. So, you know, that was one thing that they tried to do, you know, fairly soon afterwards. But they were asked to leave that only for the three days, mostly because of the fumes would still be around, you know, in the air. So, yes, they could not go anywhere, of course. And what's made this situation worse for everybody in Lebanon, and, but also, of course, for the people in the camp as well, is that that port was a major port for the country. As a consequence now... Uh, things like medical supplies, um, basic food, and most people would have seen that the wheat silo is very prominent in any filming, and that was completely destroyed as well. So they don't have any wheat for bread, and even now bread's very, very expensive. Just the daily living for people just becomes so much worse. People may know, of course, that at the moment there's only, if you're lucky, Two hours of electricity, I mean, I'm talking across Lebanon now, just not in the, not only in the camp. I mean, if people are rich enough, they'll be able to get a generator and run electricity off the generator. But of course, you know, that doesn't happen in the camp. They've got absolutely no way that they can store food uh, if they were able to buy it. One dollar, US dollar, it used to be 1,000, in, in the order of 1,200 Lebanese pounds. 
it is now one dollar to nine thousand a Lebanese pounds. So they've got hyperinflation, and people just can't afford to buy anything. UNRWA is providing very basic, small food parcels uh, for people, and um, you know, I'm sure if people were to make donations, and they're able to do that if they go to the Union Aid Abroad site, and um, you'll be able to find links to make donations to a feeder or to other agencies. It means that people will be able to, to buy food, and the women's organisation is going to be up making up parcels of food to give to people. With the port out of action, are planes still coming mm. into Beirut with aid workers and aid supplies? Yes, they are. What do they need most? So, everything. Everything, yeah. The absolute basic in their society is um, bread. Some point we're going to have to get flour or, or wheat back into the country because the stores were destroyed. And, I mean, that's absolute basic. The other thing that people use, of course, is lentils and rice and oil. And they're the basics in the food in a food store that people would normally have in a time of crisis, and owner would be giving them something along those lines. I think the thing that's going to be very serious will be the lack of um, medical supplies, because already people are saying on that news feed that, um, apart from everything else, they were expecting a lot of PPE, or protective gear, to arrive for the hospitals. That has been destroyed, that was being stored at the port, and that has been destroyed as well. Initially, the coronavirus outbreak was controlled quite well initially. People were obeying the rules and staying at home, but then increasingly um, that has broken down, and of course now it's broken down completely. So that there will be a greater, a greater um, upsurge uh, and increase in the viral across the country. And also, as a result, I mean, there were five thousand people who were wounded, mostly from glass, but also some, you know, at the moment, is 135 people have died, and some of those, of course, died from the wounds in areas outside of the immediate blast area. With so many people injured, is the hospital still standing? The main hospitals are standing, but quite a lot of the hospitals are damaged. And certainly one of the hospitals in the area closer to the um, explosion was completely destroyed. I think it was St. George's Hospital, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But the nurses were killed um, in that hospital. And the other hospitals were overwhelmed. Indeed, they, they sent um, people you know, out of Beirut to hospitals outside of Beirut because they just couldn't cope with that many people, that many injured. And people... You know, aid workers and, and other people were just, and, and, you know, addressing wounds and more superficial wounds just in the street, anywhere that they could. The worst problem will be, especially as they're moving into winter, is that there's just, there won't be enough glass in the country to repair all of the windows, let alone all of the houses that have been seriously damaged or even destroyed. Even around where um, also was, people's windows were blown out. I mean, that's only one thing, let alone, as I said before, enough medical equipment and food. Just looking at the international aid that's coming in, it would be more difficult at this time for workers to come in because of the, the social distancing and the, the need to 
isolate for days or weeks before you come somewhere. So that's going to delay, is it, the people coming in? Yeah, definitely. The workforce will be a major problem. There are a lot of Lebanese, Palestinian, Syrian refugees in Lebanon. I think still over more than one in four people in the country is a refugee. And most of those people are workers that, you know, just work on casual workers. The problem probably won't be manpower because of this large number of people who would be able to do that sort of work or be happy to do that sort of work. The problem will be payment of them. Who's going to pay them and who's going to manage them and who's going to coordinate it because, you know, everybody knows the present government has been an uprising in Lebanon since October. The government is considered to be corrupt and inept. The fact that the explosion took place is an illustration of the corruption and neglect that's somewhat endemic in Lebanese political life. I think that that's going to be one of the major problems as to how to manage it. And actually, there was a person being interviewed on the radio this morning on ABC Radio, and he's from Beirut, and and, um, because now, of course, everybody's saying, well, we're going to, we won't use the government structures, but we're going to use the UN structures. But the problem for that, and this is what he was saying, and I know that there's been discussion about this previously, is that those structures are also corrupt. You know, you have this problem in society where it's a huge issue and you have a situation like this which has caused, you know, directly resulted to corruption and and just complete lack of governance, actually. You know, Lebanon's facing a huge crisis in relation to that, which, of course, that impacts on the Palestinians and other refugees who are living there. Is there any danger or concern that the people of Lebanon being so traumatised might turn against the refugees and say, well, we need all these things for us. Why should we share it with all these refugees? One in four don't belong in our country. I think there are different structures that provide support you know, to the Palestinians are supported by UNRWA, the Relief Agency for Palestinians, and other UN structures would be working with the, with the Syrian refugees. I do know, that, you know, because I've said that you know, so many of the Palestinians did actually go into the streets like everybody else and tried to do the cleaner. And she was saying she was feeling so depressed because on Facebook people have been saying we don't want Palestinians helping us, which is just terrible to say to have a situation where people in good faith are going out into the street and providing assistance and then are being told on Facebook. I'm hoping that that's a minority of people, but there are clearly some people in the society who feel very strongly against the Palestinians and have done for a long time. Yes, one would hope in a situation of crisis like this. You know, I do know that in general the Palestinians have not been involved in any of the large demonstrations They've stayed, they consider that to be a Lebanese problem, not their problem. But it's horrible to think that people are, are refusing help on, on the basis of their ethnicity. It's shocking, really. Looking at the political situation, Helen, what's the concern there if this boils over even further? Well, certainly people have been worried about that for some time. But, you know, the crux of the problem in Lebanon, which anybody who's ever followed it would know, that the constitution creates this sectarian structure in government so that the, the president has to be you know, one particular religious group, 
the vice presidency is, you know, the, so the entire structure of the political, the entire political structure, even though they have democratic elections, what happens each time is that, is that these people in these particular religious groups are appointed to these positions and then they have their own links and those links go back decades and decades. The power structures within the community are basic, have basically been corrupt on and just I'm saying what the Lebanese, you know, people in the street are saying and everybody knows. The problem is the French set up what was called the National Pact in the, I think it was 1933 or around that time and when they gave Lebanese independence after the end of World War II when the middle, when the Ottoman Empire was cast off. And so they actually ran Lebanon until, you know, after it became Lebanon and I found it very interesting to say the least that Macron was there saying, you know, the French will help them. Well, we're the very ones that created the problem way back in 1933. And then the British, when they came there during the Second World War, they also continued and supported that, what's called the National Pact. And it was that that set up this structure. So for years, this structure, they, they need to, and people have been calling for this, they need to have constitutional reform. You know, they have to do away with that. But of course, there are people who are concerned, not just in Lebanon but elsewhere, that, that demographically, of course, the Shiite Muslim Lebanese are now quite numerous in number. You know, there's concern if you have a democratic, a properly democratic representative government, that other groups which have always held power, in particular elements of the Christian community, they would lose the power that they had before. So, getting rid of that structure means a dedicated commitment to true representative democracy, that is going to be very hard in Lebanon. You're saying that the whole system has to change. People don't like change, particularly those mm. who've got the power. How they're going to bring about constitutional change? You know, I mean, people have done. You look at Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda brought about constitutional change, but only after a most shocking genocide. I, I don't think that's going to happen in Lebanon. But, you know, constitutional change has to happen. And that'll be the issue for Lebanon is how they're going to bring about constitutional change. And will those that hold power and those that will will in such a situation if you never have proper representative democracy, will those that presently hold power, will they be happy with relinquishing power? People, as you say, people do not want to give up power at all. So I think it's going to be a challenge to try and um, help the Lebanese people well, and for them themselves to find a solution to this. You know, the impact on the refugees, of course, is that, you know, they are living on the edges of this. They're not part of this, but they still live in a community where there is such um, disorder and such corruption, really. Just explain how a feeder gets the money through to Alfat's group. And she said that um, their bank, they had some damage to the bank, but it's not seriously um, damaged. That's good. So structurally, it still exists. And Athena does send money to this bank, but they have to send it in US dollars, which, you know, what happens, of course, is that you lose some of the currency, although our exchange rate at the moment is a little bit better than it has been. Initially, the government was saying that people were not allowed to take out US dollars because there was not enough of it circulating in the country. But now 
they actually are able to take out and use US dollars because clearly you could you would not want to convert any US dollars to Lebanon because you just end up with absolutely nothing. So the currency that people are using is, is a hard US dollar cash. Yes. And so money any money that's spent via a feeder will go to this bank account, which is the Palestinian Humanitarian Women's Organization bank account. They will spend you know, money providing you know, support, particularly now as a result of this huge national disaster and the impact that's going to have on accessibility to basic food supplies, but also in, in relation to the COVID. So at the moment, the COVID, they've done very well, actually. Two people who've died from COVID in Bourjois-Barashini, they've got 10 active cases but UNRWA actually takes uh, any active cases out of the camps to a training school which is up in the mountains or previous training school and they've converted that to a hospital for Palestinians or paid the rest of it more actually because if they're seriously ill they've got to go to a Lebanese hospital that the UN would pay for and actually just going on with those figures there were 13 Palestinians who were wounded in the blast who were near it or, you know, in town somewhere. Four Palestinians are missing, are among the missing from the blast. So that in relation to the COVID, women's organisation has been definitely doing what they can, but of course, and they've been doing very well up until now, you know, they're testing temperatures and, you know, testing people for COVID. But when these new cases emerged, the camp residents are very fearful because they just live on top of one another. You know, there's just no space you can't isolate. And so people are very worried now about what might happen in the camps. Whereas previously, they were actually doing quite well. Thank you, Helen, for that update. My pleasure, Jan. Always happy to talk to you. And, of course, I told also that I was speaking with you and... Um, People want to, if they go to the Afida site, there's an update from Alfred about the impact on the Palestinians of the explosion, and there's also an update on COVID. So people are very welcome to, to donate to this immediate emergency and to donate to um, the COVID program that's going. So um, quite a lot of money has been raised. Uh, over $100,000 was raised from Afida supporters for COVID support in the areas where we're working, and some of that has gone to Olfak, uh, to the camps over there. If you would like to make a donation, you can go to the Union Aid Abroad, the feeder page, and um, provide support via that page. Thank you very much, Jen. I've been speaking with Dr Helen McHugh, and that address for donations for the Palestinians in Lebanon is AFEDA, A-P-H-E-D-A, Union Aid Abroad. This is Ari Leke, you're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka, gets up one talks. The Australian Centre for International Justice is urging the Australian Government to respond to a matter of global concern regarding the plan annexation of occupied Palestine territory, stating that 
it is time for Australia to engage in a foreign policy on Palestine and Israel based on respect for human rights and international law. I spoke with Rowan Araf, the Principal Lawyer and Director of the Centre, and pointed out that there are a number of terms used when speaking about the situation for Palestinians in their homeland, this formal annexation, annexation, de facto, de jure, and asked her to explain the various terms. Yeah, look, I can imagine that the many terms that are being used are probably a little bit confusing. So hopefully I'll put some definitions to them and they might be easier for the listeners to understand. You know, we have a situation of occupation. That's according to international law. Israel is the occupying power. That's based on the rules of national humanitarian law and specifically the Fourth Geneva Conventions. And so as an occupying power, Israel is forbidden to transfer its own civilians into occupied territory. We know that very well. It's also forbidden to forcibly expel the civilian population from the territory. But most importantly, as an occupying power, Israel is forbidden from changing the laws, the legal systems or institutions of occupied territory. So that is what brings us into this notion of formal annexation. And when you hear people talking about de facto annexation, that's the realization that what you have now is a 53-year-old military occupation. So again, according to international law, Israel is the belligerent occupying power. And what that has given rise to is a situation of de facto annexation. So you have in place systems and structure that has given rise to a de facto annexation without it actually being formalized into law. And regardless of whether Israel seeks to formalize that into law, people are saying, well, you should recognize that the situation is actually de facto annexation. And in any case, fundamentally, even if Israel was to formalize that in their law, it will not be accepted. It will not be, it cannot be accepted by the international community because it's a fundamental prohibition of international law that annexation of occupied territory is absolutely forbidden. So I hope that makes more sense. Well, just talk about 53 years of military occupation. What does international law say about a country having that power for so long over citizenships of another country? Well, I think that's where we say that the international community has really failed the people of the West Bank and Gaza Strip because the occupation, which under international law, occupations are really meant to be temporary in nature. But what we see in the West Bank and in in the Gaza Strip is that it has the permanency of an occupation. And many people have actually argued that Israel's 53-year occupation now constitutes the crime against humanity of apartheid. And that's because Uh, They argue that the definition of apartheid being an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination of one racial group over another with the intention of uh, maintaining that regime is what you have in place now in at least the West Bank. And many people can argue that actually that should be extended to Israel itself, the state itself as being an apartheid regime. But in any case, I think uh, to my further initial point that you have international law that talks about an occupation that 
clearly describes an occupation, what the limits of an occupation should be, where there are violations of international humanitarian law in occupation. They give rise to the commission of war crimes, and we see that time again happening in Palestine. So I think we can definitely say that the international community has completely failed the people of Palestine because they have been reluctant to actually act on those violations and hold Israel accountable. You know, you said to talk about what is the occupation. Israel's 53-year military occupation is really characterized by widespread, systematic and institutionalized human rights violations, grave breaches of international humanitarian law, and Israel's occupation policies and practices are there to operate and to ensure their control over the Palestinian people. And that fundamentally denies the Palestinian people human rights guarantees and protections. Well, what it seems to me is that international law and international human rights laws certainly don't apply to the Palestinians. Have other peoples been subjected to similar conditions that the Palestinians have been for all those years? I mean, it's important to say that international human rights law and international law does apply to the situation in Palestine. Unfortunately, it's just not being enforced where there are violations of those laws. And that's really, again, the failure of the international community. Look, you can talk about many other situations of occupation, situations of annexation, where there are also, unfortunately, no um, accountability for those situations. I'm thinking in particular the situation in West Papua, in Western Sahara, but we look at the example for, you know, we look at the recent example of the Western states enforcing um, Russia's um, actions in, in the situation of Crimea. You have in that example Western states actually enforcing accountability upon violations of international, international law. So we would say that the same situation should be applied in other situations of occupation or annexation. Um, and in particular here, we talk about the situation in the occupied Palestinian territory. Well, the next question is, why is this allowed to happen? That's a really important question. Why is it allowed to happen? I think there are many reasons why we, in particular, look at what Australia should be doing, what are Australia's obligations under international law, and the reason why we put out this policy brief, really to... We wanted the Australian government to be aware of the key issues, including what are the key international law issues which we've just discussed, um, and to provide recommendations about what Australia should be doing. So in addition to saying that we want Australia to condemn you know, any imminent formal annexation, we think that they should also condemn Israel's actual occupation and de facto annexation, um, as we just described before. And in addition to requesting that you know, it immediately end its occupation and construction of illegal settlements, which have a really devastating effect on the Palestinian people in the West Bank. We also provide recommendations that the Australian government actually support the investigation and prosecution of international crimes committed as part of the situation in Palestine at the International Criminal Court. We also, more importantly, actually recommend effective measures, including the imposition of targeted sanctions against the Israeli government, for violations of international law and to seek to actually impose them in addition to any imminent annexation plans. We also talk a little bit about the Australian government enacting legislation to ban settlement goods from entering Australia's marketplace and to prevent Australian companies from operating in or trading with settlements or contributing to their maintenance and or expansion. 
So those are the really uh, the recommendations that we've suggested. Obviously, um, I think it's difficult in the current political environment to expect the, this Australian government to proceed with those recommendations given unfortunate uh, effects that we saw earlier this year when Australia actually intervened and provided an amicus submission to the ICC, as you know, you and I have discussed before. But in stating that we, you know, were slightly encouraged by this statement by the Foreign Minister Mary Payne in relation to the Australian government's position on any imminent annexation that was produced on the 1st of July. And there was some sort of recognition about the impact of land appropriations, demolitions and settlement activity. But obviously, it's nowhere near enough on what Australia should be doing. Australia must be well aware of what's going on in Palestine. Everyone else seems to know what's happening. Is Australia, in in fact, one of the worst offenders when it comes to votes in the UN and other places that allow allow Israel to keep doing what they're doing? Yeah, they have been, uh, at least the last decade. And in particular, we saw in an earlier Human Rights Council session this year, just before, um, I think it was in, in the end of June, and Australia voted against a series of resolutions at the Human Rights Council to recognise the self-determination of the Palestinian people and a few other resolutions relevant to Palestinian human rights, including a resolution about imminent annexation. So um, you're absolutely right. There is a real inconsistency with the statement of Maurice Payne and the actions of Australia, the voting actions of Australia at the UN Human Rights Council and in the UN. So it's a real problem that we have here where Australia is really not recognising or acting on its international obligations with regard to uh, Palestinian human rights and the right, to pa- the right of Palestinian people to self-determination. It's a real concern and, uh, you know, Australia really needs to advocate and enact a foreign policy that's consistent with international human rights and international law and that is not open to double standards where you have Australia acting in some respects in other situations with international law, consistent with international law and international human rights law, and in relation to other situations, and in this example, the situation of Palestine, completely inconsistent um, with international law. Can we focus on the impact of all these abrogation of of these laws throughout the the decades and what it's meant and what it still means for the Palestinian people today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for people to understand that they can become immune to the idea of what is an occupation, what is a military occupation. And it's not just, you know, really minimal breaches of human rights. These are really widespread and systematic fundamental breaches of of human rights that really impact on the everyday freedoms and everyday life of Palestinian people. And in here, we're obviously talking in particular about the West Bank. You know, we see continuous land confiscation, serious impacts on um, home demolitions. We see that constantly. There's also the impact and restrictions of uh, food and water insecurity. And there's serious issues with, obviously, the confiscation of natural resources. That's a really big item and 
sustains, I think, Israel's occupation because land is expropriated for the specific confiscation of natural resources, which in turn then impacts on many Palestinian rights in relation to food and water, as we just described, but also in relation to farmers accessing their crops and lands. Many, many, many human rights uh, impacts, including um, the detention of children, prisoners, political prisoners. There's also ongoing and excessive use of torture in prisons. Many, many fundamental breaches of human rights that this military occupation and, again, de facto annexation gives rise to. In our policy brief, we wanted to highlight the issue faced by people that are being supported by Australian supporters here. That's the Australian Friends of Hebron, who support projects that access with, for access to education and school projects in primarily in the Hebron Hills area, which will be, we think, one of the main areas that will be affected by any proposed formal annexation by the Israeli authorities. And so we wanted to highlight that aspect as, as well. But, you know, I think that one has to understand that formal annexation will have a serious effect on the health and well-being of Palestinians. It will restrict community development. But also we want to ensure that this people understand that this is ongoing now. And even if we don't see Israeli authorities uh, moving to formally annex the West Bank, we wanted to highlight that these issues are actually ongoing and current as of now and that they must be condemned now and Israel must be held accountable for those violations now. But how do they be made accountable if when the votes come in the UN, the certain countries yeah. stymie it? That's why Palestinians have resorted to their really last resort for criminal justice accountability, and that's at the International Criminal Court. We see there that some Western states weren't very supportive of those accountability measures, and again, it gives rise to this issue of double standards. Why is it that they support some areas, some situations for accountability, but seek to really provide or shield Israel and, and empower it with the impunity that it has now. So I think it's important for all of us to recognize that everyone has the right to seek accountability for serious international crimes and that we should be supportive of victims of crimes and trying to access those avenues for justice. And, you know, the ICC here is a last court of last, last, is a court of last resort for accountability, given that the state of Palestine is is a member of the ICC and can, and victims within um, the jurisdiction of the court can seek accountability at the ICC. So that's one area we would fundamentally support and urge the public in Australia to also support victims of crime being able to access justice and accountability at the highest level. And we have to remember that we're talking about millions of Palestinians, not only the Palestinians in the occupied territories, but the, the Palestinians now all over the world who have been denied the right to return. Yeah, I mean, that's a broader issue in relation to the uh, question of Palestine. And you have as Palestinians in the diaspora, many refugees and their descendants who are also, in a way, in this conversation on annexation, are also not included in the conversation and 
you will see that many of them have begun to talk about um, and when you will continue to talk about the question of Palestine to ensure that it includes them as well. But in, in this particular policy brief, we wanted to only focus on what are Australia's international obligations in relation to, to this issue of international concern, where there are international justice and global justice issues. Um, and that has been the focus of this particular policy brief. But we recognise, of course, that it is not a full picture of the question of, of Palestine. Do you get or do you expect any reply from the, the government on your recommendations? I don't think we will see any response from them. Um, we hope that Prime Minister, uh, Foreign Minister May, Payne, excuse me, has seen it. We did certainly send it to her office. We've also sent it to persons within DFAT, and we hope that they will read it and take on those recommendations. And because they are consistent, hopefully, with the advice of their international lawyers within their departments. The problem is that the Australian government has to be able to see what the international legal obligations are and to actually meet at that point and recognise that, uh, that these are their obligations and they have to comply with them. And I'd imagine that there are groups in many countries of the world doing similar work to you to try and highlight and change the situation for the Palestinians. Yes, of course, in particular, Palestinian civil society really has been at the forefront. Uh, they document in, in documentation, in analysis. Uh, they collaborate with organizations all, over, all around the world. They have been really, again, at the forefront in trying to not just um, advocate on their behalf, but to also uh, seek accountability for the violations and the serious crimes that uh, occur in, in Palestine. Are there any final words for the people listening? You know, we put this policy brief out to really to the Australian government, but we would really appreciate if the public is also aware of it. We wrote it in a way, hopefully, that will be readable to, uh, you know, the broader public. We tried to include the explanations of the really sometimes high-level international law issues and we would hope that also they would think about some of those recommendations in particular where we talk about settlement goods and that really provides opportunities for consumers and the wider public to think about what kind of decisions they make in their purchasing power and to support Palestinian people in their call to ensure that you know they are not also complicit in supporting products um, made in the Israeli settlements, which are really inconsistent with international law and a violation of international law. So your listeners, if they wanted to read our policy brief, they're welcome to do that on our website at www.acij.org.au. And we also recommend that they follow their local community Palestinian advocacy organizations in their state. I believe that those organizations are listed on the website of APAN, who's the uh, broad national organization. That's the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and we recommend that they follow and support them as well. Thank you. Thanks, Jan. I've been speaking with Rowan Araf, the Principal Lawyer and Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. 
get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or Not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few of your lines. Now the second and final part of the online forum held on the 22nd of July titled The Palestinian Struggle in the Era of Annexation. It was organised by Free Palestine Melbourne and Mel from FPM was the moderator. Guests were Diana Booty, Palestinian-Canadian lawyer and former spokesperson for the Palestine Liberation Organisation who is best known for her work as a legal advisor and participant in the Israeli-Palestine peace negotiations. Mahu Magrabi, Palestine-Australian journalist, feature editor at The Age, foreign editor of both The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald from 2014 to 2017, and Dr Yara Hawawi, activist and senior Palestine policy fellow at Al Shakarka the Palestine Policy Network. We begin with Mel. I'd like to turn now to the international response and bring Maha in on the discussion. Diana's already touched on you know, some of the elements of the international response, and particularly around the two-state solution. But uh, Maha, a question for you. I mean, effectively, what the Trump plan has done is given a green light to Netanyahu to move forward, and it's an endorsement of an apartheid state as peace. I wonder if you could speak to, in the in the current context of geopolitics, the rise of right-wing governments, neo-fascist regimes, we've got you know, Brazil and India and, and Trump in America and in Hungary, this sort of thing. What's this endorsement of an apartheid state as peace really mean? First of all, good evening, everyone, and salam alaikum again. And I'd like to say in passing, because Diana talked about being honoured, uh, that as far as this is concerned, the honour is all mine, appearing next to Diana and Yara. I would say that it's not quite simple, it's not a question of endorsement of apartheid, Melissa, to be honest, because that, in a sense, happened a very long time ago. America has accepted Israel's conduct and the implications of that conduct for an extremely long time. We've been lost in arguments about whether or not what Israel does constitutes apartheid, arguments which, in my opinion, are completely pointless for a very long time. What I would say is that what has uh, changed is that um, some 30 years ago, it was decided by a very different generation of uh, Western politicians and American politicians that a process had to begin in which uh, Palestinians were at least seen to be included, even if the nature of that inclusion was not always clear. Uh, What has changed is that the international order, the liberal international order, the so-called rules-based international order, is now basically falling to pieces. The major powers... Russia, China, the United States have no interest in it it anymore. 
And that is um, symptomatic of other countries as well, Brazil, Hungary. Many of these countries now only refer to themselves in terms of uh, how they form their political horizons. And what has happened in the, that context is that an old dream has resurfaced. And that dream is that you can decide the fate of Israelis and Palestinians without reference to Palestinians. I remember a very long time ago, people uh, talked about the non-existence of Palestine and the non-existence of Palestinians. And then during the uh, period after Madrid and Oslo, uh, suddenly everybody accepted that there was such a thing as a Palestinian and such a thing as a Palestinian uh, territorial rights. What's happening now is that we're disappearing again. The word Palestine is being forced out of the lexicon. The idea of a Palestinian space is being forced out of the lexicon. And most importantly of all, uh, a process is being designed where Israel and America are the two parties in any peace agreement. And Palestinians don't need to be. I mean, I think it's very interesting that Jared Kushner talked about how Palestinians don't actually have to trust him to accept the agreement. And I think Naftali Bennett, long before Jared Kushner, said the great thing about my peace plan is that it doesn't require Palestinian consent. I think this is the fundamental difference is that now we're back in a situation, which is the situation, I should say, that obtained before 1990 uh, for well over a century which is that Palestinians' consent isn't required. We've gone back to the position of being a non-people who don't need to be consulted. I have to say, sadly, it's one of the results of the so-called peace process that went on in the interim, the years between 1990 and now. But basically what has happened is that our agency, a series of sort of dead political ends was created for us, and then our agency was just dismissed. Unfortunately, we don't have a major power sponsor in any sense. We don't have an international community united behind us. We certainly don't have an Arab world united behind us. In fact, I would say probably that the major powers in the Arab world are more worried about what will happen in Libya than they are in what will happen to the Palestinians. You know, we're in a situation now where the question is, how do we recover our agency? How do we recover our ability to have an input into matters? And at a time when, as I said, international law and the idea of a rules-based international order, which is very much talked about here in Australia, it's paid lip service to, is in a decline which nobody seems to be able to rescue it from. You're leading me into it, the next topic that I want to get to, but before we get there, I wonder, Yara, can you comment, was there anything positive in, in what we saw as the international response in the last few weeks? Uh, was there any cause for hope or is it just really more of the same? I mean, it depends on how you look at things, if you want to sort of find positivity and hope. And, and today's a good day, so I, I, I will present a few points <laughs> for you. Look, I think uh, what has come out of all of this is there are a lot of actors that are looking incredibly ridiculous, at least uh, to my mind, uh, namely the European Union. Let's not forget that during the Israeli election period, which uh, was over a year-long period, the, the EU was courting Benny Gantz as a, as a partner for peace, as someone that they could possibly work with, a possible opponent to annexation. Yet the entire time, Benny Gantz was promoting annexation as a, a crucial part of his political mandate. At one point, he actually said that Benjamin Netanyahu's team had plagiarized the annexation plan from them. And it wasn't even a point that was up for discussion. It wasn't even a sticking point in the unity government that they formed. The sticking point was actually about the judiciary and judge appointment rather than annexation. And yet the EU maintained this line that Benny Gantz was much better than Netanyahu. 
Now, of course, vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, that wasn't the case. You know, Benny Gantz was a man that used the 2014 bombardment campaign against Gaza in his election campaign material. You know, this is a disgusting man who actually, if the ICC case goes ahead, he will be charged with war crimes. Um, and this is just a background of who Benny Gantz is, and this is a background of what the EU does in its spare time. For me, it's incredibly frustrating when many Palestinians still regard EU member states or the EU as a, as a body, as a, as, a, as a friend or an ally or as, as a critic of Israel. Let's not forget that the EU is Israel's biggest trading partner. The eve of annexation, the day before the so-called annexation, July 1st, the EU signed an aviation agreement with Israel. Israel faces absolutely zero repercussions from the EU, and it has all the mechanisms to do so. And so for me, you know, one of the positives that have come out of all of this is how ridiculous people are looking, how ridiculous international actors are looking. But also, I think that there has been an important shift in the narrative, slight shift, where a lot of people are recognizing, at least unofficially, that Israel has no intention of allowing a sovereign Palestinian state to exist in the 67 territories, in other words, the West Bank and Gaza. And I think that's, that's an important realization. That's a realization that many Palestinians came to long ago, uh, namely Edward Said, the morning after the Oslo Accords were signed, he wrote an epic piece in which he laid out, he had incredible foresight and laid out everything that would happen. Uh, and indeed it did happen as, as he predicted. We can say that there are positives, I'm careful with that word because maybe we're clutching at straws, but there are opportunities to move forward. And, and I think one of them is that changing narrative, that we're no longer talking about two states, that actually there is a one-state reality, that there is one regime that rules and governs over all the people from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. And the question now is not one state, two state. It's about how do we deal with this reality that exists on the ground? What do we want the world to look like? And I think these are existential questions for the international community. It's an existential question about the international legal regime. And what happens in Palestine doesn't only happen in Palestine. We don't exist in a vacuum. This is a, a global situation. If everything, all the violations that happen in Palestine, if Israel is allowed to continue unabated, that sets a precedence for elsewhere in the world. And, and I think that's slowly becoming a realization for, for many, many people. Can I just say there, in addition to what Yara has said, it reminded me of something that Diana had said. Diana talked about how the fact is that any annexation, you know, we have all this gaslighting going on about whether it's going to be 30 percent or 1 percent or 2 percent. But any annexation is illegal. Nobody worries themselves about how much of Ukraine Russia has annexed, uh, what percentage it is. Nobody worries about what percentage of Georgia Russia currently holds. The fact is that these are violations of law. When Yara says about the international community facing an existential moment, I think it's also a moment in which we have to end our um, expectation that the international community is somehow going to ride to the rescue or is going to have some sort of shift, change of heart, massive change of heart about all this. I think, as she says, the EU has demonstrated that it lacks the will to pursue this matter, which means that we have to force it onto their agenda. Uh, and that can only be done uh, through recovering our agency. And, and we might talk about that, I think, I hope a little bit later. It's a great segue to my next question, because I think it's an existential question for the international community, but also for the Palestinian struggle. So I wonder, uh, maybe I'll throw it back to Diana. It has all kinds of implications for the Palestinian struggle. I mean, 
annexation, as, as you've all talked about, it means broader acceptance of one state, an apartheid state, whatever we want to call it. What is the way forward for the Palestinian leadership? I mean, we've seen the PA declared the suspension of the Oslo Accords. It announced the overt security cooperation with Israel would be suspended. And Hamas and the PA appear to be engaging in talks. I mean, what is the way forward for the Palestinian leadership? This is always a really difficult question to answer because I don't think that they see a way forward and I don't think that they've thought through a way forward. So I, I want to outline what it is that they have done and why it is that they have done it. But I also want to outline how limited those things that they have done have done are. So first thing is, yes, you correctly indicate, indicated they're no longer bound by the Oslo agreements that comes 27 years too late, or let's say, let's be optimistic today, 22 years too late. Agreements were supposed to have been concluded in May of 1999. We're now in July of 2020. So that's a pretty long time. The first thing that they've done. The second thing is that you're correct that they have ended a security collaboration and then the other forms of collaboration with the Israeli army and with the Israeli government. And the third is that they have come forward and they've indicated that they want to see some type of accountability and some type of action. You're correct in saying that they have indicated they're going to come, Hamas and Fatah are going to come together, but we really haven't seen anything beyond the, the one statement. It's very positive, but I don't think there's anything that's gone beyond that. Here's why all of that is very limited. The first is that the Palestinian Authority has spent the past two decades just trying to stay alive. And in its attempt to just try to stay alive, they haven't focused on creating alternative strategies for liberation. All that they have focused on for the past two decades is getting themselves back to a period of negotiations. And in fact, we've seen this even now in some of the statements that Mahmoud Abbas has been saying is that he's willing to go down a path of negotiations. So there has been some talk of them resuming negotiations, of having a different broker, etc. So they haven't really gone, they haven't spent the past two decades figuring out an alternative strategy for liberation. This is clear that negotiations are not working. It's, it was clear a long time ago, if anybody was paying attention, and they didn't spend the time pushing for an alternative. The other thing is that they've not spent the time trying to disentangle themselves from Israel. In fact, over the course, as Yad has already mentioned, over the course of the past more than two decades, we've seen that the Palestinian Authority has become more entangled with Israel yes. rather than less entangled, which is to say that the donors are the ones who are dictating policy in terms of economic policy and other policy, which is primarily what has led, that coupled with Israel has led to these policies of de-development that Yara has mentioned. For example, in a time when Palestinians in the Gaza Strip were able to farm oranges, which is something that they were able to do because Israel then imposed closure and refused and, of course, destroyed many of the olive groves, particularly along in the Beit Hanun area, the donors then instead shifted and said, all right, well, given that you can't grow oranges, we're going to now have you grow uh, strawberries and we're not going to address any of the structural problems when it comes to 
the closure system, etc. So that always the priorities are have always been shifting based on what it is that the donors have wanted. And so the Palestinian Authority has not spent the time for the past two decades of disentangling themselves from Israel's dictates and from what the donors have wanted. The third problem is that although they have cut security cooperation, collaboration now, I personally don't think that it is sustainable. And the reason that it's not sustainable is for the reason that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that there is no, they haven't created an alternative. And so what's happened is that today with the Palestinian Authority, so much of Palestinian life falls within Israel's security regime. So security collaboration is not just Israel telling the Palestinian Authority who to arrest and who to imprison and who is a member of Hamas and who's not a member of Hamas or Islamic Jihad or whatever. It's far beyond that. If, for example, a business person wants to be able to purchase import tiles from Italy or from Turkey, they need to get a security permit. If a person wants to be treated in a hospital, and Yara has already mentioned that there are so many people who are unable to get treatment in Palestinian hospitals because that equipment, because Israel controls that healthcare system. For example, when it comes to cancer, there are certain types of cancers that require radiation. Israel has never allowed a Palestinian hospital to have any radiation equipment because they say that it violates their security rules. So that means that anybody requiring radiation treatment has to get a permit to leave the West Bank, to leave the Gaza Strip, to get treated in an Israeli hospital or to go abroad. That also falls within the ambit of security cooperation. What I'm seeing now is that while the response has been that, yes, we're no longer bound, and two, we're going to cut off security collaboration, that model, absent a different strategy, is not sustainable. And the third response that they've given, which is the, which I mentioned already, which is to push for accountability, has really just been a one-off. We haven't seen an effective push by the Palestinian Authority to actually hold Israel accountable. We've heard them say it once. We've heard them say that they've requested it from uh, representatives of the European Union, but we haven't really seen them sign on to the growing BDS campaign. And it's important to mention that the BDS campaign is growing not because of the Palestinian Authority, but despite the oh, Palestinian absolutely. Authority. And so this is why, in terms of where it is that we are going in future, this is where they need to have a regrouping and rethinking and a reassessment. And the first step has to be that this bilateral process is over. They need to disentangle themselves completely and think of a brand new model. My mind goes to where does that leave Palestinian civil society? The role of Palestinian civil society, the organising on the ground, how helpful is the shift to an apartheid framework, to the discourse, to the struggle? I know that there is a, a fair section of Palestinian civil society that express concern actually around the framing, the, the shift now to framing the struggle as one of equality and rights and away from liberation. I wonder if you could you could speak to this. I know you've got thoughts on this this topic. 
Well, the shift away from liberation hasn't just happened now. I mean, I think it's very important to point out that this shift from anti-colonial struggle uh, to one of state building actually you know, happened in, in the early 90s after the, the Oslo Accords. And this was sort of imposed on Palestinian civil society as it became more reliant on donor funding. There was, you know, this focus on state building institutions, on projects that would facilitate that. And so Palestinian NGOs and organizations sort of shifted a lot of their work to fit within that donor demand. And of course, I think it's important to mention that there is a difference between Palestinian civil society and the grassroots uh, and sort of grassroots groups uh, and civil society did have a much stronger connection. And there were a lot more networks between the two, certainly uh, throughout the 80s. But that has slowly been eroded over time, especially with the demonization and the criminalization of a lot of grassroots groups and civil society organizations sort of fearing to be involved in certain groups because of the labeling of those grassroots as sort of potential terrorists, um, as potential criminals. And they're really in a, in a difficult situation being held hostage by uh, the donor community. Now, the worry around the use of the term apartheid, and me and I know that me and Deanna have used this term and, and, and we, we are advocates of using this term in certain spaces, but I think it's a term that has to be understood in a certain context and not devoid of that context. Now, the context is one of a settler colonial regime. Settler colonial regimes around the world have used different mechanisms to control indigenous people. Um, in South Africa, for example, because the indigenous people were a majority population, it was important to impose a very tight regime. And so they did so with the apartheid regime, which coincidentally they institutionalized and formalized in 1948, the year that a Zionist settler colonial regime wiped Palestine off the map. Israel applied the apartheid model to the 48 territories, um, to the, the Palestinian community that they gave nominal citizenship to. And then they lifted that regime and applied it to uh, the 67 territories when they occupied those territories, being the West Bank, Gaza, and the occupied Syria and Golan Heights. When we talk about apartheid, it has to be within that context. It has to be within a context of settler colonialism. And not to do so, I'm worried, is incredibly dangerous because when we focus on equality and one one person one vote and nothing else we leave out of you know a very uh, important part which is justice justice uh, has to be a vital part of the process a lot of people are worried about using a certain word and it's always the elephant in the room and that is decolonization because decolonization is is a very difficult phrase. It's a very uncomfortable phrase for a lot of people. It's uncomfortable for a lot of allies of Palestine because usually because they are also settlers themselves somewhere. It's something that cannot be separated from the discussion of apartheid. I don't just want equality. I want justice. I want reparations and I want restitution for the land and the properties that have been taken from from me and my family. I want the right of return for Palestinian refugees. I want, you know, redistribution of wealth and resources. In this case, we can look at South Africa and learn from our comrades and brothers and sisters there. You know, they very much ended political and apartheid in South Africa. But when you talk to them, you, you recognize that actually there is an apartheid that still exists, and that's an economic apartheid. Um, the wealth uh, gap between blacks and whites in South Africa is enormous. And many will tell you that actually apartheid hasn't ended. And I think that's something 
important as Palestinians and allies. You know, when we're looking at the shifting narrative, when we're looking at the increased use of the term apartheid, which I think is important and it's, and it's great to recognize that there is a system of inequality that is based on the domination of one people over another, that this can't be void of the political context, which is one of settler colonialism, um, yeah. which is one that requires justice and full justice so that we can ensure, you know, something that is long lasting. Because without justice, I can guarantee you, peace won't last very long. The last speaker was Dr. Yara Hawaii, before her Maho Mugabe, and also Diana Buta. They were part of an online forum held on the 22nd of July titled The Palestinian Struggle in the Era of Annexation, organised by Free Palestine Melbourne. Get lost in science. Tune in to 3CR every week to hear Beth. Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. Now to South Australia and a webinar which was held on the 8th of July, Too Good to Waste. You'll be hearing from Jason Bilney, Aboriginal Determination Corporation in Barangara, Vivian McKenzie, a local traditional owner, and Peter Wolford, no radioactive waste on Aboriginal land member. The Senate has since voted that it would give South Australia regional town of Kimber Australia's first national dumping and long-term storage site for radioactive waste. But the struggle will continue. Howdy, my name's uh, Jason Bilney, and I'm the chairperson of uh, Bangala. I'm a proud Bangala man, and also on my grandmother's side, I'm Bangala as well as Wirungu, and my grandfather's side, also Wirungu and Gugura. The nuclear waste affects us all, as all Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. On my grandfather's side, we suffered a tremendous loss from not just the waste but from nuclear because I was a part of the um, atomic bombs which was set off in Maralinga. Now on my grandmother's side, we are fighting for the same cause but to bury nuclear waste in our country. The Bangala people are, you know, very disrespectful to the Bangala people, to my past and present elders. It was never part of the process from the start. We had a meeting with the, back then it was Minister Canavan, which was only one meeting, and we wanted to vote and have a say. And he would not include us in the Kimber vote with the government. So we had our own vote and he assured us that he would put both the votes together. When the votes were done, he did not put our votes together. So if we would have put Bungala voted unanimously, no. And if he would have put the Bungala and the Kimber votes together, it would have been 43.7% that would have said yes and they never would have got it. It was on the 53-year anniversary of the referendum. What's that say to all Indigenous people, not just us as Bungala? We're still classed as foreign fauna, the second-class citizens. And the Bangla maintained that there have been numerous defects in the government's overall selection process for the nuclear waste dump. There was no appropriate consultation or broad consultation with the Bangla people, not just Bangla people, as in all people, it's divided Kimber as well. We asked for heritage surveys to be done. They would not let us do any heritage surveys. And we could have done it with the government, and we were denied the right to vote in the Kimber ballot. 
even though we asked, repeatedly asked to be involved, and that's where we had our separate vote, the Joint Parliamentary Committee on Human Rights has determined that the process, the proposed bill, may be in violates bungalow human rights. This is a bipartisan committee of members of parliament, including the Liberal mem- members. The government is now seeking to remove our rights to, for judicial review and remove all judicial review. The oversight of the process by sidestepping us as traditional owners, all traditional owners anywhere in Australia could happen. The existing process is trying to legislate that the location where Minister Catavan did not, he stepped down and did not give his reasons why he picked Napperby. The only reason for Schedule 1 of this new bill that they are pushing through Parliament is to remove the legal rights to seek judicial review. The existing Nuclear Waste Management Dump Act allows us to seek judicial review where the bill removes the right by legislating the location. The bungalow have never received the right to vote in the government-run ballot with Kimber, like I said before, have taken our rights away and did not let us vote and be a part of it, only because it was not rateable. And that was their little, like the judge said, they should have kept the gate open. They made hurdles to us, so they made it that you had to be rateable property. And we, and we are not rateable property, but we are the traditional owners of that area. And the judicial oversight of the executive committee action is fundamental to our rights as all Australians and traditional people, and that administration process under the Nuclear Waste Dump Act should be fully amendable to judicial review where the government's trying to take that judicial review out. In the same way any executive, any organisation runs, it's our right as Australians to have the judiciary right and to review the government's decision is very disrespectful to all people of Australia. You know, they've made a 20k exclusion zone around Kimber where it doesn't just involve us as traditional owners, it involves the rest of South Australia, let alone Australia. And they say it's medical, it's not medical. It goes overseas, gets deactivated, whatever you call it. It comes back highly radioactive. When it comes back to Australia, they change. They change the stamps that's on it and make it low level. Where they want to build it is on a part of a big dreaming, on a part of a storyline. You can build the most thickest concrete. You can have the most thickest steel. It's an earthquake area that has relatively earthquakes all the time. All you need is one earthquake. It gets back in, into our waterways, destroys our stories. It destroys the rest of our peninsula. And we as Bangalore people, we do not want the nuclear waste. And we will fight it to the end. It is my right. It is our people's right to keep fighting for our old people that fought for us. It took us 21 years to win our native title. Let alone mark the 53-year anniversary of the referendum. So it is our duty to continue that fight for our people. Ajimatna on my dad's side from the Flinders Ranges. And I would just like to acknowledge that I am speaking tonight from Nagana people's land in Adelaide, in South Australia. One of the things that I would like to say tonight is what is happening at this very moment in the town of Kimber is very sad. It's because we as the um, traditional owners of the Flinders Ranges, we had to put up with this from the government of what was happening there. And the stress and trauma that we went through were family members and that, and, and that it, it, it ripped the family apart. It absolutely ripped us apart of what we're doing. During that time, um, we lost a nephew, and then only three months later, my sister, Heather, one of the sisters that was with me, that fought this waste, um, she lost her only son. They did not show any 
sympathy or anything towards her or towards our family. It was culturally inappropriate what they did, that we had to put up with this. They ramped it up when they knew that we were at our lowest peak. But we stood firm and we believed in ourselves. And one of the mottos that I used was never give up. And we didn't give up because where we sit today is we beat, the, we beat that waste up in the Flinders Ranges. But today we stand with the people of Kimber. And I'd just like to say that at this very moment, there's a rallies that are going around Australia, and I support that with the uh, Black Lives Matters. The waste dump does not discriminate against anyone. We should be all standing together as one and saying that in South Australia, all lives matter, and it's not only going to affect South Australia, it's going to affect the whole of Australia. Because if it goes ahead at Kimber, they're going to be transporting it by sea, by land, and we know that ships sink and trucks crash, trains derail. So we look at the things that are going to happen there. Are we going to allow this for our generations to come or are we going to stand as one and fight against this and tell the government we do not want this? And one of the things that should be done there in Kimber now, I understand they're speaking with the, the Bangalore people, they also so should be speaking with the Wirrungu and the Nauru people. And they should be still speaking to the, the groups in South Australia because it's going to affect all of us. It's going to, it's going to go through Aboriginal land anyhow. So they've got to be, they'll have to talk to everybody that's happening. And coming right from New South Wales, from Lucasites right through. That's what I'm saying. But I stand by the people of, of Kimber. I support them in their fight against this uh, waste dump that's, and I call it a waste dump, and all the lies that goes through by the department saying it's hospital waste, it's not. And they only want to tell the people what they want to tell the people. But people in Kimber, honestly and truly, never, never, never give up. You've got all of us here. We should all stand as one of South Australians, and we should all stand as one people in this country of what is happening. I know there's people that support this, but they haven't been given the correct information. I'll stand until I can't speak anymore against a waste dump because it's all it is a waste dump. It's poison. It's not good for the land. It's not good for the people. It's not good for the environment. You know, if we're going to allow this to happen, we're letting this happen for our generations to come. What are we going to tell, you know, what are we going to tell our families? And one of the places where they're looking to do it over there in Kimber, that's where all our wheat comes from and they're trying to say that it's not going to harm it's going to bring in jobs well let me tell you something what jobs is it going to bring in how many jobs have they promised over there they promised 45 in the Flinders Ranges and when we questioned them on that about that you've got to be a, a rocket scientist to to be there to do that it's not going to create employment it's not going to create anything all it's going to create is problems and uh, disruptions in family lives and friendships and that. So everybody really, really wake up because I tell you what, the roses aren't smelling too good at the moment. If we, we don't do anything because at this very moment, the department and, that, and the government have got us at our most vulnerable time. They've got us when this COVID-19 is on us. Now, we should not give up. We should still, still stand together. And I thank you lot for inviting me to, to speak on this because... It's no good thing. It's very mentally, emotionally draining. Mentally, emotionally, it physically drains you. We come from this land. When we go, that's where we go back to. 
So one of the things that I would really, really push for and stand by the traditional owners of that area is to push for a heritage assessment so that they can hear the stories. Everybody's got the stories. Our storylines link into each other, and what we can do is we can share that with each other. And I tell you what, that is one of the greatest weapons you can have is when you know your stories that's in that land, they're not going to beat you because... That is how. That is what we're educated on. That's a part of our education. That is our identity. And never give up. Never, ever, ever, because this land is our mother. And if you look after the land, the land will look after you. And that was my mother saying that you care for this land and the land will care for you. Thank you. I want to acknowledge our Bangala friends and the, and the land that I'm actually zooming in from today where I farm. I just want to comment on what Jason mentioned. Um, certainly one of the terrible things about this process that we've been involved in and what we've found is that it's quite clear that if you have a differing view to the government, regardless of what that is, what issue you raise, there is no respect shown to you whatsoever. It's been quite remarkable, really. It's been such a long five years. There's no question of that. And uh, the process that we've been involved in is certainly all-consuming and has certainly taken its toll. And I'll probably just give a bit of background of who I am. I farm here in the Kimber area, in the Buckaboo district, along with my brother and our families, and we're uh, third and fourth generation farmers. I'm also uh, on the Kimber Consultative Committee that uh, liaises with the government department, and I'm the chairman of the No Radioactive Waste on Agricultural Land in Kimber or South Australia, which is quite a mouthful. But our group is over 400 members of mainly local and, and people from over the EP. And we've certainly consistently maintained that the federal government has a responsibility in finding the best location, and that certainly is not on productive farming land in Kimber. There's been continually strong opposition here for the last five years. That has not changed um, in that in that manner at all. We've always maintained a question about our clean and green reputation. Being farmers on, on a location which is export orientated. We just can't understand why you'd expose any of our agricultural export business to any risk at all to the to the perception and stigma attached to something like this, to a nuclear waste dump. The mind boggles. Air Peninsula, due to its location, has a great ability to maintain our reputation because of our, where we're situated with water on either side. And I'll probably just give you a bit of history of where we're at and what's happened. Uh, certainly for us, it started in 2015 where there was two sites were accepted into the process and we were put through a 120-day consultation period and obviously we were handed by the department with a lot of information and things like that. And it's quite interesting, we tried to, and over the five years, we've tried to have debates where you have uh, professionals from both sides at that debate in our Kimber town, but the department have uh, stopped that. So... Apart from a webinar that happened out of Kimber, there's been nothing in a room together, which is quite remarkable. In April of 2016, uh, Minister Frydenberg took Kimber out of the process for that consultation period, and he certainly cited because of the division the process had caused within our community, and it lacked broad community support. Now, that percentage was 51% in favour at that time, back in 2015, 16. Uh, in March 2017, Minister Canavan, and he's Minister number five that we've had, accepted two more sites from Kimber. This was after a meeting that was held in October um, 2016, instigated by the Federal Member for Grey, who 
I'm sure everyone is aware of lives or comes from this community who's actually a, a neighbour of mine and my brother's here at Buckleboom. Along with he and the, the mayor of the town and a few councillors and a few pro-dumpers, they met with Minister Canavan and he notified us that he was going to accept those two nominations and his reason being there had been a significant change in sentiment. So with that, back come the department again for a, a further three or four days just to uh, evaluate things again and it proved that it was 56% of support for it. So it actually only went up 5%, but that was a reason enough for him to, to accept it. Kimber was then obviously put through another 90 days of consultation. And so by this time, I can only, you know, really say to you all, the impact this has had on people was quite dramatic, uh, but we still had to persevere with it. And at the end of this 90-day consultation, the first ballot was going to be held, and this was to go into phase two. And the big carrot hanging out the front of phase two was that a community would get $2 million for every year they were in that phase two. And obviously money, as we know, talks. The ballot was held in June 2017 with 56.7% in support and 42% opposed. But that was out of an eligible 793 voters. So really it was only 49% support. And it was only an increase of only less than 1% actually from when they first arrived. From there, Minister Canavan put Kimber through to phase two. And then, of course, a lot of us certainly knew by then with all the meetings we've had and discussions with the department, we knew damn well that Kimber had always been earmarked for the facilities, no doubt about that, because whatever we raised, they certainly weren't listening to anything we were saying. Obviously, you know, we now know uh, the second ballot went ahead in August, come back with a 61.5% in favour and 39% opposed out of 824 people. Obviously, through that, you know, and in the role I have in the consultative committee, along with some others, you know, it's pretty one loaded one side there for the pros, but we certainly wanted to have a 50k radius around that site um, because we felt that there was there's a lot more people that live closer to the site that are in the neighbouring communities than what there is from the Kimber Township. Minister Canavan and the Mayor and some of the pro-dumpers all were clear that everyone would get the say with a submission and that they'd all get a, get a say, which uh, we said, well, that's fine, but as long as they do. Just would like to mention a few things now. Once Minister Canavan named Nepandi as a site in February, the Minister Canavan at the time said there was, there was broad community supporting Kimber Community Wallace. He has never explained what that actually is or what the threshold was that met prior to the ballot. We know results show that there is a continued strong opposition with nearly 40% remaining opposed. Previously, Minister Frydenberg removed the two sites from Kimber with the same amount of opposition. But I think the important point here, and this is where it was mentioned in previous speakers about those outside of Kimber, Canavan stated publicly at a meeting in Kimber and at a meeting with us at the consultation committee that those locals that live outside of Kimber that didn't get a vote and are locals to the town would get their say with a submission and they would, and he and the department would categorise those submissions by firstly those living outside the district and secondly neighbouring communities. Clearly this did not happen and those submissions were just public record. The department come along to Kimber and said that the minister read all the submissions and took it into account or what we found when they presented it. There was 2,789 submissions from outside of Kimber area and 94.5% were opposed and 28 were in favour. So the minister obviously ignored and the department chose not to categorise anything and take any of that weighting into account. So obviously very frustrating for everybody and certainly for those people that live 
close by who we are fighting for as well. Very disappointing. I just want to mention a few other issues that are local that are very important to us and we've raised with senators and with all the letter writing we've been doing. And it's quite clear. Why does this, just, I'll just list a few off so people can hear our views here. Why does the federal government want to put this facility on agricultural land in Kimber when productive cropping land makes up only 4.5% of the state's mass? Why did only 824 people get an opportunity to vote on a national issue, yet those within the 50k radius of the sites but outside the Kimber District Council boundary have not had their views recorded as local community sentiment? And when you bring it back to figures, it's 0.005% of this state is deciding what's going to happen in this state, which is quite a remarkable thing. And we've always maintained it's certainly bigger than Kimber, this facility. How could a ballot only Kimber residents and ratepayers be ballot of informed consent without any detailed business, case or independent risk analysis on their, against the agricultural industry? And it's interesting, we have asked the local council for that. They say it's not their process. We've sent two letters or a copy of a letter to the Prime Minister about that with no response. So it is disappointing. Fourthly, why does the federal government take the right approach to find the final deep burial site for the low intermediate level waste opposed to the storage above ground, which is not consistent with the world's best practice? It doesn't make sense to double handle this waste and travel 1,700 kilometres across country. We believe it's fiscal responsibility and leadership that there should be one site, one cost. There's been so many issues that have raised and probably one that Jason mentioned, but the neighbours, the neighbours that are close by to this site have really had no respect shown to them and their views, regardless of what it is, they haven't been heard. All they're concerned about as, as far as the department is those that share a fence line. Um, so if you live across the road, you're not deemed as an immediate neighbour, which is absolutely rubbish in a community such as a farming district. Also, the, the nuclear medicine issue, it's quite interesting. We had Audi Patterson from some Ansto here at a, a big meeting in the town hall. I asked him a question about the increased production of nuclear medicine and, and, and the fact that we're all getting hit over the head about nuclear medicine, which, you know, that we may be stopping that, which is absolute rubbish. But he told us that at 300 people in that room that less than 10% of production at ANSO is used within Australia. So it was quite a, a remarkable thing. Just like to fill in a bit on the impact it's had on people. I think that's very important. Obviously, the process has been terribly flawed and very divisive. We've had people affected greatly, and there's deep scars in our community now. I mean, we used to be a very tight-knit community, but that's not the case anymore, and that's very disappointing. And, and it's quite clear that the department doesn't care about Kim, but they don't care about the people in here and what happens to them. There's no doubt about that. And that's probably the big point I want to make to everybody, that the people in this have been forgotten about. It's disgusting, really. We've had lost people from our town that have already left, and there's people that don't like... They find it very difficult to go into the t- local town to, to even do uh, business now, and that's that's terribly sad. But if you really want to know what intimidation is, it's quite clear. You be, get between money and people who want it, and that's where this process has put us people that have said no, and it's very hard because you get the finger pointed at you a lot, accused of all sorts of things when all we've done is said no. I guess we as a group and people here, we're, we're not phased on any abuse or anything the department wants to throw at us. We've told them they'll need to buy a big bulldozer if they want to run over us because we're not going away. You've been listening to traditional owners Jason Bilney and Vivian McKenzie and agricultural farmer Peter Wolford from South Australia speaking as part of the Too Good to Waste webinar which was held on the 8th of July. 
concerning the regional town of Kimber and Australia's first natural dumping and long-term storage site for radioactive waste. As I mentioned at the outset, the Senate has voted to approve the site, but the struggle by the people in many parts of Australia continues. Are you ready to be inspired by local grassroots history? Connect with the stories of Friends of the Earth's 45 years of creative resistance. Everything from anti-nukes in the 70s, road blockades in the 90s, Indigenous solidarity, feminist politics, and so much more. Tune into the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash acting up. And be inspired to create a fair and just future for all. Many civil liberties are threatened or have already been lost in many countries and Australia is no exception under the cover of COVID-19. I'm speaking with activist Peter Murphy about the Philippines and Peter, has it been confirmed that Australia assisted the Duterte regime in framing its draconian anti-terror laws? It looks like uh, there's some claim from members of the Duterte government that they got advice from the Australian Embassy. So uh, there's a transcript from the Congress about that, which I haven't cited myself, but I'm going to get. And I think think it's going to be pretty important that questions are asked in Canberra about the veracity of that uh, transcript and what's claimed in it. And uh, if so, what was the advice given? Separately from that, Duterte himself bragged that uh, they got some sort of insights, they copied the Australian law, roughly, something like that was his claim. But I think uh, our set of laws, which are, you know, there's a huge number of them about terrorism, are pretty bad. But the Philippines one has has gone, you know, a great leap further in the direction of authoritarianism because it's removed the issuing of warrants, uh, even the uh, defining of who's a terrorist. It's it's going to be put in the hands of an anti-terrorism council who are going to be appointed by the president. They're not uh, lawyers, they're not uh, prosecutors, they're um, police and and soldiers. So, you know, there's there's going to be like a judicial stream operating and there's going to be a a stream completely parallel and outside of judicial oversight happening. In Australia, there's been quite a few arguments about even the coming bill to amend the ASIO Act, which uh, is about the role of judicial oversight but the uh, the balance the relative balance in Australia is that there must be a judicial oversight of uh, detaining people. You can't just um, be detained without uh, any warrant being held uh, for in the Philippines case for 24 days without uh, having to be charged with anything, and you uh, are not allowed to be put under extended surveillance in Australia. Surveillance actually, like uh, you know you have to have a warrant to even access the megadata which they they have got 
of all of our telephone and computer operations, um, but there has to be a warrant to, to access it. In the Philippines, there won't be anything like that. So this is targeted virtually at any criticism of the Duterte government, do you see? Yes, that's what, that's what it comes down to, because if it was actually targeted at the New People's Army, the alleged you know, terrorist threat, they're, they're not accessible to you know, the police, they're not accessible to government bureaucrats, they're in, a, in, in zones which are beyond the reach of the regime. So it's all about those civilians who are carrying on a normal legal you know, political activity that is publishing material, holding meetings, doing research, uh, going and lobbying the Congress, those sorts of tasks, they are being um, targeted by this. And the day it was in a, uh, came into force, the, actually the day before, there were five urban poor women arrested for going online and holding up placards online uh, saying that the law was wrong. That, that was considered a breach of the law. It's, it's really absurd, and, but it's, it's, not, it's not laughable because, you know, those five women are locked up. They've been there now for two, two weeks and a bit. So, yeah, it's, it's serious. Well, we know that the international community doesn't seem to do much about Duterte in the past. Has anyone voicing their concerns at the moment? Yes, it's actually uh, a pretty extraordinary situation in terms of the international community because the United Nations Human Rights Council has taken up the uh, issue in a formal way following a vote last last year. And uh, in June, on June 30 this year, Michelle Bachelet, who's the High Commissioner for Human Rights, so she uh, presented a report to the Human Rights Council, which was really quite... Uh, focused and forensic you know about uh, the breaches of uh, the international covenants on human rights the two major ones uh, and some minor ones or lesser ones done by actions of the Duterte government and even by the president himself inciting rape inciting violence inciting you know the killing of people who are unarmed yeah i think this this was quite amazing because there's a block of countries represented on the Human Rights Council who spoke up, you know, to denounce the report. They were defending Duterte. Uh, on the other hand, there were plenty of countries also got up and spoke about their very serious concern about what was in the report and that uh, the whole council had to take it seriously and they had to consider what to do next. So there were some recommendations, but there's been no vote on them and uh, been advised that that will happen in September. So again, it's only a couple of months away, less than two months now. So uh, the lobbying and uh, the discussion with different uh, delegations is, is starting to take place. And Australia, you know, it's complicated what it's doing, but Australia has supported that investigation. It supported the report of Michelle Bachelet. Uh, not not quite as strenuously as some other countries, but it was in support. And uh, on the other hand, you've got this other report that the Australian Embassy helped them, you know, craft a anti-terrorism law which Michelle Bachelet's report condemned. So we've got this schizophrenic approach in Australia where there is a you know an anti-terrorism theme, and then there's this other theme where, where we're saying we're upholding human rights, and. Uh, 
know that what that one hand doesn't really want to know what the other hand is doing. So that's what I find when I, I do my lobbying. At a certain point, they say, "Oh well," the DFAT people say, "Oh, you've got to go and talk to Defence. We don't know what we don't know anything. We can't we can't answer your question." <laughs> so um, that you know, civil departments of the government, but. You know, we don't get to talk to ASIO, ASIS or any of those people and I really don't want to either. But they obviously have been playing a role, you know, in the in the period of Duterte in the Philippines, allegedly because of Al-Qaeda or ISIS and the broad anti-terrorism theme. But, but you know, a massive amount of what Michelle Bachelet's report revealed has nothing to do with Islamic fundamentalism. It's really about killing trade unionists, killing lawyers, killing urban poor uh, voices. What's the best that the people of the Philippines could expect from this Human Rights Council? Uh, I think that uh, they can expect that the council will uphold the report. It will ask for further monitoring and investigation and it will isolate the Duterte government in the international community to some further extent than it is now. And this will play out in countries like Canada, the United States, Australia and New Zealand, the UK, all of Europe actually, in the sense that once one of these sort of things happens at at an official level like UN, their governments, their parliaments have to take into account the the human rights uh, aspect of any trade agreement, other form of economic aid or any other aspect of the relationship with the Duterte government. So you can expect some kind of rolling back of um, normal international aid and military aid and so on and political support for that government. And that should help take the pressure off the people in the Philippines. I think that's that's what we should expect and I, hope, I think that's what the Filipino human rights networks hope for, that will ease the pressure on them, which actually has been mounting. You know, it's getting worse and worse, not not stabilising and not getting better. One report I read said that overseas Filipinos are also at risk from this act. Is that correct? That's right. It it applies to Filipinos anywhere. And it's it's Filipino citizens anywhere. And there's, you know, millions of them overseas. And some of them are involved in organisations which are being targeted by this act, like uh, the Migrant Workers Organisation Migrante International. So that's got branches all around the world. And they do criticise the Duterte government because the neglect of migrant workers, especially in the Middle East but in many countries, is is really severe. And right now in the pandemic, it's really severe. So that alone is enough to get you into trouble. How can they focus on ones overseas? How can they reach them? Well, those people have got labour contracts for one year or two years or three years. They've only got a Filipino passport, so they've got to come home. And they're in countries which are authoritarian. And so, for instance, Saudi Arabia has got many hundreds of thousands of Filipinos working there. And um, the Saudi government's quite sympathetic to Duterte. They spoke up strenuously in support of Duterte at the Human Rights Council. So, you know, anything can happen. It's it's really true. I guess I should also talk about the very high level of the politics here, that there's an exile leadership of the National Democratic Front of the Philippines based in Utrecht in the Netherlands. They're refugees. 
but they they are Filipino citizens, uh, most of them, I think. So they potentially, you know, can be named. And the governments in previous uh, presidencies have tried this and failed to uh, establish that any of them have committed any crime that they should be extradited for. But now here's a new crime. So you can expect them trying it on too. And that would be a way to tie up in legal struggles the people who are trying to negotiate some kind of political pathway out of the, the long-standing conflicts in the Philippines. As recently as the end of 2017, you know, they were they'd virtually negotiated a significant agreement on economic and social reforms, which would be a substantive improvement you know, for the country. That is, both negotiating teams had, had concluded it, initialed it, and it was up to Duterte to say, yeah, let's, let's formally sign it. Well, he, he, he said the opposite. But you see, it's tantalizingly close. This group of leaders in the Netherlands is important in enabling it, but they could now be hit harder by military people using this new anti-terror, anti-terrorism law. What about Filipinos living in Australia? Would it matter whether you are a Australian citizen now or you are still a Filipino citizen? Can they reach them? I think they, they can reach dual citizens, but they if someone's now an Australian citizen and hasn't got Filipino citizenship, they've got no right to to go after them. It's you know something that's it's sort of impacting on Filipinos that I know here. As soon as that weekend in Ju- July came up, they started asking, "Oh, what does the extradition treaty say?" You know, <laughs> and so there's there's uh, issues there. But in fact, the extradition treaty says that. Uh, people seeking asylum won't be extradited. That's a, that's a good protection. But uh, if you're a Filipino citizen, uh, that's different. What percentage of the Filipinos in Australia would be still Filipino citizens? I think a large number of them would be dual citizens. Mm. So I would say it's a big number. And while all this is going on, the pandemic rages in the Philippines. Yes, it's a it's a very um, you know vulnerable society. The people in the urban areas are very living very closely together. They have very poor living conditions, and there's very you know rel- you know for a country with 100 million, 110 million in the population, they have very little testing going on. This this is a reflection of the very poor health budget in the, in the Philippines. So. You know, the, the provision of uh, personal protection equipment is really shallow. The provision of um, medicines is expensive. Basically, if you end up in a public hospital, you've got to provide everything. You know, your family has to feed you, provide the bandages, provide the drugs. It was already a very bad situation. So, you know, people are very frightened. But on the other hand, a lot of people live day to day. They get their income every day, and that's how they feed themselves. And in these lockdowns that have happened, which have been quite sharp, they've been very, very hungry. So there's a lot of distress, and a lot of people, you know, had no choice but to try to go out and get an income. And um, I think a couple of hundred thousand people have been arrested, at least that many. So, you know, that then they're put into a detention area where they're all crammed together. 
so that there's incredible conditions for the virus to spread. And with a lack of testing, no one really knows its extent. This is a, a government of the Philippines that we in Australia are supporting with our taxes. Yeah, yeah. It's about, it's hard to get a really accurate uh, figure, but the published figures are something like, you know, 80 million a year in, in economic aid and about, it's about 30 million a year in military aid. Plus, you know, there's training of over 150 Filipino military officers in Australia every year. I'm, I, I haven't seen a costing on that, you know, but it's, it's significant. And Australia sends training teams, military training teams to the Philippines as well. And, and I think it's hard to know how many Australian military are actually now uh, on duty in the Philippines, but it's somewhere between 100 and 300. That's, you know, that's the same as Afghanistan for us. So, you know, it's significant and not discussed. You know, it's not a public discussion. Thank you, Peter. Yes, it's sobering, isn't it? Okay. Mm. Thank you very much, Jan. It's good to get this information out into the public. Okay, talk to you again. Okay, okay. bye now. And thanks to activist Peter Murphy.